0: Hi, I'm Matilda, and my favorite food is French vanilla ice cream, and my least favorite food is um, <laughs> really spicy peppers. Bye.
1: Hi, I'm Rachel. My favorite food is probably lamb moussaka. I also really like salted cucumber slices. Ooh, and hot buffalo wings. Thank you for tuning in to The Fervor Effect. Today we'll be talking about food insecurity. We'll be chatting with Dr. Norman, Jen from Preble Street, and Heather from the Belfast Food Co-op. Because everybody deserves access to good food, even vanilla ice cream. But unfortunately, many Americans are unsure of where they'll be getting their next meal. In the United States, 37.2 million people were considered food insecure last year. In my state of Maine, 173,000. One in every five children in the state of Maine are considered food insecure. Food insecurity is a term created by the USDA. It's a household-level economic and social condition of limited or uncertain access to adequate food. In the United States, due to the effects of the coronavirus pandemic, more than 50 million people may experience food insecurity in 2020, including the potential 17 million children. Every community in the country is home to families who struggle with food insecurity, including rural and suburban communities. Many households that experience food insecurity don't even qualify for federal nutritional programs like food stamps or SNAP, and they need to rely on local food banks and other hunger relief organizations for support. Now that we know where we're at, what can we do to help? Well, you can donate your time, your money, and your food, and you can do that in a few different places. You can also help reduce the stigma of asking for help by acknowledging the fact that we all need some help from time to time. And we're also gonna get a better understanding of food insecurity and its effect on one's health. And we're gonna get a better understanding of the resources available in our own community. So that if you ever need help or you come across somebody who does, you'll know exactly what direction
0: you can point them. Here's Dr. Norman. So I'm Anastasia Norman. Um, I am a primary care family medicine physician. I've been practicing um, for seven years since I graduated from residency. And um, one of my passions is actually uh, nutrition and the way that it interacts with health. Can you tell me a little bit about
1: your practice and like how that got started and how it functions?
0: Absolutely. Um, Well, it's, I kind of put the cart before the horse, actually, myself professionally. I I already decided before I even got admitted to medical school that this is uh, more or less the type of medicine I wanted to be practicing, Um, and it just took a long time for me to get back there, (laughs) Um, so 16 years ago, 16 years ago, I had graduated from college, and It was actually a little bit longer than 16 years ago, but but 16 years ago, I more or less realized I wanted to do medicine, and I was at that time living on an organic farm in Northern California, and there was a physician there who was um, mostly retired. He was kind of had some health problems, and he was just living alongside the farm, and the folks that worked on the farm were all completely uninsured. And um a lot of them struggled with uh cultural and language barriers, and so he uh treated all of them for either barter or cash, you know very old school family doc style you know home visits and the whole whole thing and that ecosystem of them supporting him and him supporting them uh, really spoke to me and um i just I loved the way that that worked and i I wanted to get there that was that was my goal so so I initially actually looked at Ayurvedic medical school, and I was um, in the process of, of applying when I, re- I had kind of this chance encounter as these things happen uh, with one of their visiting lecturers from India who herself had been an MD um, and then um, went back and became an Ayurvedic doctor, and that was what she was practicing in her, in her later years.
1: Okay, for the few of us that are not in the know, Ayurveda, meaning the science of life, is considered the oldest healing science, which originated in India 5,000 years ago. And it takes a full body approach to health, including physical, mental, and emotional characteristics. You can Google Ayurveda,
0: that's A Y U R V E D A, to find out more. And she said, you know, you really need to go get a traditional Western medicine degree. And then you can do both later, but you need to do this now while you've got energy and we need more people that can do both. And something about that, just the way that she was, she just, uh, she was a very, she was a very strong woman (laughs) and she kind of didn't take no Mm -hmm. for an answer until I promised her I was going to do it. But so I did. I applied to Western medical school um, and I got into one that was very friendly to Eastern philosophies, which is Mm -hmm. um, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City which it's a very traditional medical school, but it was founded by the Jewish population in New York City um, in the 50s when Jewish physicians and people that wanted to become physicians were being denied entry to uh, medical schools for for various reasons. Um, A lot of it happened to do with racism. And so they had this – there's this general sense of just being very accommodating uh, to folks who want to go a different route and also who might – uh, have uh, a different approach. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> sounds like you found the right spot to be in a few different ways.
1: The right place to be on the farm to kind of get your calling and then and then finding the guidance along the way. It, that's awesome. I assume that hunger and food insecurity must negatively affect the body due to lack of consistent nutrients. Can you explain what common issues may arise in a body without access to regular meals?
0: Absolutely. Just kind of taking a broader picture at when I'm wondering about food insecurity in my patients, um, one of the most it sounds at first kind of unexpected or or um, kind of counterintuitive is obesity, especially in my in my children. If I have a child who's um, overweight or obese, something that's definitely on my radar is is this child um, food insecure? Are they in a house that food choices have to be made? based on finances in a way that's not always allowing them to eat what what they would want to and uh one of the reasons for that is that you know we have a, a culture right now which has uh it's very calorie rich nutrient poor meaning that we have a lot of um really uh, inexpensive food. uh, It tends to be uh, carbohydrate heavy and um, specifically really a lot of processed carbohydrates and foods that have things like high fructose corn syrup, um, these kinds of sweeteners that don't uh, exist in nature and they have interesting effects on the body. High fructose corn syrup has very interesting effects on our ability to digest carbohydrates. It actually uh, affects other areas of digestion and it's kind of interesting looking at these chemicals that we've kind of created, which it kind of get the job done in a certain way, but have these unintended consequences. And I don't think it's any accident at all that we have this enormous problem with obesity, especially in children right now in the United States.
1: So the obesity is really about the food that they do have access to, not having enough nutrients in it to kind of to do its job in the body.
0: Uh, Partly, yes. So there's certain nutrients that without them, we have problems uh, digesting our food properly. You know, in extreme cases, you can get, you know, I haven't actually seen this in in a child here, but I have seen it in some adults. You can get thymine deficiency, which Mm. actually can cause congestive heart failure, which causes a weight gain that is extremely unhealthy, Mm. a a water weight that, that builds up because the heart can't effectively pump the blood And so you get this kind of buildup of extra salt water in the body. And vitamin D, magnesium, selenium, there's a lot of nutrients that are important for the metabolism, for how the thyroid works, for how our cells um, metabolize the the nutrients they have. Every vitamin is a cofactor in an enzymatic reaction. That's why they're called vitamins. that's, That's what they do. So, like, B12 is, an, is a cofactor in an enzymatic reaction that converts different forms of energy that allows the body to process, uh, you know, chem- chemicals from one form to another. And that's just one example. And vitamin D has a, a whole lot of things it does in the body. So, when people are, are sometimes low in these, it, it has far-ranging effects.
1: Wow. that's That's fascinating. So, it's not just about... The nutrient poor food that they have access to is the fact that it's actually working completely against them and being able to take up any of the things that they'd have access to that that would be good for them
0: it, yeah so it's it's kind of interesting because you might have somebody who's eating a lot of carbohydrates and then those carbohydrates don't have as many nutrients, and so that's going to affect their ability to to use those carbohydrates and Um, carbohydrates that don't get used are turned into storage, which is fat. And, you know, there's a lot of different things to go into that. It actually also, this is kind of one of these crazy things that have been discovered recently, is our DNA is not static. It's not like um, we have one DNA expression our entire life. It actually, through the folding of the DNA, which is this term called epigenetics, different parts of the DNA within the brain of the cell, which is the nucleus, different parts can be exposed at different times. And whatever part of the DNA is exposed is the type of protein that's going to be made. So, for instance, if someone has a heavy carbohydrate meal for breakfast, especially depending on what their genetics are already expressing, that's going to create um, a change in the hormones in their body between leptin and ghrelin, which are like the gas and the brake, And those are chemicals that are expressed, hormones that are expressed from the GI system that then go up to the brain and affect how the brain's DNA is going to be expressed to actually change how the body metabolizes food later that very same day. Wow. So having just a bagel in the morning before I go do farm chores for the day is not really the best situation. (laughs) it depends on the person there there are so many different ways of thinking about this but for somebody who's doing a very heavy physical exertion sometimes for certain body types carb loading beforehand can be good now there's other body types which actually fasting beforehand can be good it it's it and you know there's there's different schools of thought here but for instance somebody that tends to be very slender and tends to Um, Not have a lot of energy stores, maybe on a chemical level, they don't have a ton of glycogen, which is the storage form of glucose stored in their liver, you know, they tend to like, get really exhausted with with long exertional stuff, then taking in some carbohydrates beforehand might give them some staying power, you know, but if you've got somebody whose body's built more like a diesel engine, where they've got they've got you know glycogen for days, and you know they would be a, a person that probably would survive the salmon. You know, they the kind of person that they you know the joke is they look at a carb and they gain weight. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Their bodies are made to, to last the famine. And so for them, actually, their body's kind of expecting to, you know, as much as we kind of anthropomorphize this, their body's expecting to go without those those carbs, have a heavy physical workout, and then replace that afterwards. And so for them, it's it's a different process, you know. So when I give dietary recommendations, it's extraordinarily individualized. Wow. That is fascinating stuff. That's why I love
1: this.
2: <laughs>
0: I
1: know. i have already, like, trying to apply it to my own life, and I'm like, wait, wait, wait. That's not what we're here for. <laughs> um, so I also assume mental health is impacted by the lack of food security. Do you have insight on the ways the lack of nutrients affects the brain
0: or mental health? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Actually, I was I was just talking about this with my husband last night. There's the the kind of the scarcity mindset versus the abundance mindset. So somebody could be looking at the same plate of food and if they are coming at it with the idea that, you know, this is maybe the last good meal I'm going to have in a bit, I really need to make this count. It's going to be a different experience than someone who's thinking, ah, you know, I got, I, I, I'm going to get this again tomorrow. Sure, it's not in my fridge right now, but But I can, you know, there's more to come. There's plenty. You know, there's plenty. There's no concern. They're going to approach that meal a lot differently. And they're going to approach how they acquire food differently. Somebody who has had food insecurity in the past, they may find themselves hoarding or um, kind of scanning for sales and then stocking up on low cost. But maybe low nutrient food sources, just in case, you know, they may mm-hmm. buy an entire case of something, even if it's not a great food product, just because they got a really good deal on it.
1: If I have a coworker who is food insecure, even though we're doing the same things, we're getting up, driving to work, and we're we're having completely different days, just because their stress level must be just kind of taking over. Um, I would think. And that must just affect like the day-to-day and overall mental and physical
0: health. Well, absolutely. And this is one of the reasons that school meals are so incredibly important. Um, And that's taking an enormous toll on folks right now. If you are going to school and you're hungry, you know, just imagine you're starting your day and you're supposed to be taking a a test, say, but you haven't had a good meal or you, you had an inadequate meal and you're hungry how can you possibly focus on what you're doing you know you might be even hangry you know that mm. that term for for when we, you know our our bodies are kind of reacting to things a little bit more stridently because we're not uh, not in a good nutritional spot so you know this is during this past year with with covid it's certainly extremely hard and i think uh hard to bring up uh for families that are struggling with food insecurity because they might, you know, if their child is not getting on the bus to go to school on a particular day, they're not going to be getting breakfast, lunch, afternoon snack, you know, and and it might be difficult for them to acquire those things. And they might mm-hmm. feel uh, shame about that and not reach out because there are programs to help folks get food. There's a lot of programs actually to help folks get food but not everybody that could use those services is is reaching out for them.
1: Do you think there are things as a community member that I could do or we could do that would reduce the stigma asking for help when it comes to food security?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, it's a wonderful question. Um, I think, you know, normalizing the fact that this time period right now no one's doing this well. Like, no one is really su- succeeding right now. And being really real can be helpful. So one of my favorite uh, posts recently, I have a friend who is she's, – she's, you know, kind of in this high-powered uh, position at one of the local – nonprofits and I have a ton of respect for her and she's you know one of these people I kind of look up to and it was the most absolutely cathartic and warm-hearted thing she did recently was to post on Facebook some pictures of her house just completely torn apart like there was um <laughs> a picture a picture of like her christmas tree and in the front of it like just chaos and then a little, like, hand-drawn arrow at this little pile of stuff on the floor. You can't really tell what it is, and it just says poop. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, yes, yes. Like, you're trying to work from home, and you've got two toddlers. And this is just where mm. we're at right now, you know? Yeah. Uh, that is just bringing some humor uh, to it and not trying to pretend that things are okay, but also... You know, we don't have to be overly dramatic, but I think just just being really real, and mm-hmm. and also I think how we bring things up in a visit. When when I'm wondering about that, if I have, you know, especially like an overweight child in front of me, and hear the parents and we're kind of talking about it, you know, not being judgmental at all. You know, if they say, you know, most of our diet is rice, like. My patients who um, have a really strong culinary background from, you know, like Guatemala, Honduras, uh, you know, Ecuador, they might be cooking with a lot of rice at home, and I might say something like, you know, is there is there other stuff that you might use instead of rice as a base for the meal, and we can we can think about options, and then you know I might say something like you know, the, the farmer's markets, there's often some really great programs working through there that help families. And I think every family could benefit from these programs. And I'm wondering if you have ever um, thought about it, if this is ever something that's, you know, been been a consideration for you. And they might say, oh, give me some more information. Because, you know, mm-hmm. the farmer's markets, as you I'm sure know, because you're in this, is that food stamps, you can spend two to one sometimes um, at farmer's mm-hmm. markets.
1: Those are called farm fresh rewards and we're going to hear more about
0: them later in this episode. One of the other things I'll just point out, you know, one of the, I'm seeing a lot of folks right now that are either uninsured or underinsured and being able to have these conversations with them has been wonderful. Um, I think one of the problems when I was working in an insurance based model is that the payment system dictated the length of the visit um, and they, did it, they do it indirectly, but basically the 15 minute visit is not, it's not a, it's not a brainchild of like, this is the best thing for the patient, you know? Um, it's, it's because of the, it's a financial decision. And right. when I'm in a direct primary care environment, there's no time pressure. That's not something that's even relevant anymore. And so being able to get to know somebody and figure this out, it just makes an enormous difference. And I, it's kind of like the first time I'm really able to have the conversations that I've been wanting to have for over 10 years since I mm. started, you know, the process of becoming a medical doctor. It's, uh it's kind of incredible. One of the things that has really brought around to me is that when, when folks are directly connected to their physician and there's no middleman and there's nobody kind of making these decisions you know, the the patient's able to actually advocate a lot better for themselves um, and especially for families, uh, you know, being able to get in touch with a physician by phone or by text or by email. You know, if you have five kids at home and you want to talk about just one of them, dragging all the other four kids into the office just to talk about the one is like a nightmare scenario. And if (laughs) You <laughs> can take care of it over Zoom or text. You, can, you know, There's a lot that you can do that way that, you, you know, you may or may not need to do an exam immediately, and then you can kind of guide, the, guide what you're going to do at that point, and you're not taking this family and causing them to have to do this hour-long trek just for a simple phone call.
1: So how would somebody
0: find out more about your direct primary care practice? My website is the best way to do that, and that's my business name with the, with Maine at the end, so it's Grace Health Maine, like Maine dot com. Awesome, and there's
1: more information on there on like how to sign up and more information about direct primary care and what it is and everything on there.
0: Yeah, I have um, you know, I think all of us are a little. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to spread the word about this because direct primary care, its you know, none of us are going to get rich off of this. Primary care is the least expensive part of the medical system, but it's where 90% of the care actually happens. You know, so when Medicare did their evaluation, um, I think it was either last year or the year before, they figured out that 90% of the care that their Medicare beneficiaries were getting was happening on the primary care level but that was only constituting about 10% of the cost that was in the system. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, paying, uh, you know, in conventional, the conventional world you would pay like what, like a one or $2,000 per month for insurance that then you have <laughs> to spend a $3,000 deductible to suddenly have the option of only seeing your primary care doctor for $15 <laughs> or, yeah. or, or you can just pay your doctor directly and, you know, it's it, like primary care just doesn't make sense in insurance model. It's That's not where the expense in the system is. You know, um, it's like having car insurance that pays for oil changes. It, you might as well just pay the mechanic directly. It's always going to be cheaper. And, and so it's part of the safety net for folks because no matter what their insurance situation is, they can get medical care and it costs less than a cell phone bill. And we can yeah. take care of just about the, the vast majority of what people need and it's worthwhile to us and we're still able to put food on our families plates so it's you know it's that analogy it's like the you know the the farmer and the doctor working together to keep the people that are managing the farm healthy the bedrock really of of health is uh the lifestyle and the lifestyle is only as healthy as what people are able um to do to take care of themselves what I will say is that healthy food does not need to be expensive, and one of the survival meals that I know I did when I was in medical school and I didn't have, like, two pennies to rub together, you know, um, mm-hmm. are you can actually you can actually make um, rice and beans and throw a little bit of veggies in there, and you can make the whole thing in a rice cooker. And I actually, um, one of my blog posts is um, related to this. Uh, you can make a really healthy meal that's less than a dollar per person per meal called kitchery. It's a, it's an Ayurvedic recipe. You can make it in 15 minutes in a rice cooker um, enough to feed a family of four and it'll cost you like five bucks. It's, it's super affordable. Um, Oh wow. And then, yeah. And, and it's, and, and you can, you know, and that's with like, or all organic stuff uh, like veggies, like the whole deal. And the other thing is that there's some really healthy um, microwave meals out there. And usually I wouldn't be a huge proponent of microwave meals, but there's actually like, you know, the market, the market forces have created the demand and there's a couple that I use that are less than $4 per meal, you know, which definitely more than the kitchen. But if you're on, if you're in a rush or you don't have a proper kitchen, you know, some of my patients Mm -hmm. are living in motels. If you Mm -hmm. just have a microwave, You can make yourself a nutritious meal for less than four dollars a meal. Awesome.
1: Is there a particular like one that you're thinking of that's or something to look for on the packaging when shopping for a nutritious option in the frozen food section?
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a company called Saffron Road. I think they're organic. They're definitely halal. They have them right around here. Like I know right across the street from me Legion Square market you can buy one for $3.49 and i know that cuz that was what i had for lunch today <laughs> um, um yeah full disclosure i did not have time to cook um that was what i had for lunch <laughs> healthy choice has um power bowls which they have like uh like a couple of there's one called refresh and there's another they have like kind of funny names but they're healthy choice power bowls and those are also like $3 and 50 cents. And I have had a couple of those recently and they, they actually are all veggies and meats. There's like no grains in there. They use nice. right. They use riced cauliflower instead of rice. Okay. So like they're oh, using cauliflower powerful. as the, as the carb base, which is amazing. Wow. And the whole thing comes in a, in a, in a like compostable bowl. I, I mean, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. You know,
1: and if you don't think you can get your little ones to eat that cauliflower bowl, I have a tip for you. Put the bowl down in front of them. Look them square in the eyes and ask, "How do the little piggies go?" That's right. Oink oink. Now show me how the piggies eat. This is your trough. Show me how the piggies eat. You good boy. Show mommy how the piggies
0: eat. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Ben Tibbles, and I am the communications coordinator at Preble Street. So, who are you coordinating
1: communications
3: for? It's actually a little bit of everything. So, our communications department is two people: my boss and I. I manage the website and our social media. I talk to clients and help them share their stories. Talk to our caseworkers also to help share client stories and you know put out there what's happening on the ground uh, for people experiencing hunger and homelessness, and also as that regular media goes. So TV stations, newspapers, radio stations would reach out to me to um, get through me to interview people that work at Preble Street.
1: To back up for people that aren't super familiar with Preble Street, like obviously you guys do pretty much everything. You help with homelessness, you help with food insecurity, but how would you describe Mm -hmm. Preble Street?
3: So, Preble Street is a nonprofit human services organization. We're located in Portland, and we actually have offices in Portland, Lewiston, and Bangor. We provide services all over the state. We have over a dozen programs. And like you said, yes, we, we work on anti-hunger issues. So, through our soup kitchens and food pantry and advocacy work, we also have um, three housing first sites where people live in supportive housing in Portland. At, I believe that's 88 different apartments that we have people living in. Uh, we have Veterans Housing Services, which is where caseworkers work with the veterans to help connect them to permanent housing and help them financially as well. Um, anti-trafficking services to help combat trafficking, which does happen in Maine. Um, people are often surprised to find. We have a new rapid rehousing program, which is currently connecting people who have been experiencing homelessness to uh, permanent housing and setting them up with support so that they don't fall back into homelessness. And we are also running, we also run shelters. So we have a women's shelter, a teen shelter. We are running some quarantine shelters right now for new Mainers and people experiencing homelessness who test positive for COVID-19. And we're working on opening a wellness shelter in Portland, which would be for people who have been chronically homeless and might have mental health issues and you know need more support. So our, our shelters are all run by caseworkers and social workers, and that way people would have access full-time at this 24-7 shelter to social work services to help them meet their goals. So that's kind of a long wow. overview of a lot of the things that we do.
1: That is amazing. I didn't even know of all of the things that, that Preble Street did, so that is so outstanding. <laughs> We're a busy organization, um, yeah,
3: but we kind of, we I'm, evolve with the need.
1: There is so much stigma around needing help and people who are homeless or hungry. Can
3: you speak to the stigma and stereotypes? Yeah, um so it does yeah unfortunately like you said it seems like a big part of society kind of looks down on people who are experiencing hunger or food insecurity um and kind of place the blame on those people when really it's a it it comes from a broken system you know especially in maine there's a lot of rural areas and in those areas if you don't have good transportation it's really hard to get access to nutritious affordable food and right now you know housing and rent costs have gone through the roof over the last few years. And a lot of times, you know, when people are struggling and living below the poverty line, they're focusing first on keeping a roof over their heads. So once money goes to pay for this, you know, these increased rents, this increased mortgage, and, you know, to keep the heat on when you live in Maine, there's not always enough money left for food. So it's not that people aren't trying or, you know, there's, it's not their fault that they're hungry. It's that they're, they're trying to survive. And actually – You know, since your podcast is about resiliency, I was thinking before this conversation about also how resilient people that, you know, I feel like the part that people don't see or think about is how resilient people that have gone through real hunger are. And I have a little bit of a story of someone I know that I'd like to share, if that's okay. Absolutely. This person, he's he's shared his story publicly several times, but I didn't speak to him before this. So I'm going to use a pseudonym. So we'll call him John um so john's a navy veteran and you know he came home he got to work He was living in maine and unfortunately he got injured while working and was uh, and he lost his job and while he was working he was also on um, snap which is most people know it as food as food stamps it stands for the supplemental nutrition assistance program well once he lost his work he also lost his access to snap and to food stamps because at the time it was required that you worked 20 hours a week to qualify for food stamps so now he was he he had no job he had no food he became homeless and he actually spent a year living in a tent um eating once or less a day he was literally hunting squirrels to survive the most impactful story he's that he shares is um he lost so much weight and he's not a big guy to begin with like he's just an average sized man he lost so much weight that he had to create seven new holes in his belt just so that it would continue to fit so he did eventually connect with Preble Street. He became housed. He went back to work. He got back on food stamps and to help supplement his grocery bill so that he could pay for food. And so not only, you know, was he able to lift himself up, find housing, get back to work, but he has now become a huge anti-hunger advocate. John has gone to the state house to testify in front of, you know, the main legislature. He's gone to D.C. to tell Congress he brings his belt with him and holds it up, showing the seven holes in it to show them you know, how much he suffered because of the limitations that were involved with SNAP or with his food stamps and to try to convince them that more needs to be done to help people because people are literally starving. So he's turned his life around and now uses his experience and his voice to make things better for others. And I just find that pretty incredible.
1: That is inspiring. I can't imagine. I, yeah, I did know. know about that 20-hour um work rule I don't know if it's changed mm-hmm. since then but I had a friend who was just temporarily laid off and was able to find like 15 hours worth of work and they're basically like we can't help you unless you make 5 hours more a week yeah. and they're like I could honestly afford enough rice and beans if I could if I could find 5 hours more a week to right. not need your help Right
3: I know it's so that, so unbelievable like the, the it just is such a backwards idea. Like, you know, like I don't know if they think that starving people is going to make them more able to find work. Like, it just makes no sense. Like, I, yeah, that's definitely one of the things that we advocated against was this rule.
2: Okay.
1: How are Preble Street soup kitchens and mobile food services running at
3: the moment? There's actually several different ways that Preble Street is fighting hunger right now through direct services. So we have two soup kitchens, one at the women's shelter at Florence House in Portland and the other at the Preble Street Teen Center. And both of those places serve three meals a day, 365 days a year. But uh, those right now are only for women and the youth. We also have a food pantry, which we increased from one day a week. The last several years, it was one day a week. But with COVID, the need was so high that in March, we moved it to five days a week. And each of those five days, we are serving about an average of 65 families with with groceries on each of those days um, and that's located at our central kitchen at 252 oxford street in portland so tuesday through saturday starting at 1:30, people can go there to get food um, there's also the central kitchen also provides three meals a day 365 days a year to anyone staying in a shelter in the area so we deliver or it's sometimes picked up by people at the shelters to like the ymca city shelters quarantine shelters and any other shelters in the area and our Street Outreach Collaborative is bringing two meals a day from the central kitchen to anyone that's not staying in a shelter but is experiencing homelessness, so people that are living on the street and for whatever reason can't access shelter right now. So just between the, the food going to the shelters and to people living outside, that's 800 meals a day that we're providing. Wow. And there's also, sorry, this is like a lot. Um, we also, through our various programs, have emergency food boxes. So, for example, if someone in our in our Veterans Housing Services knows of a client that needs food, they would bring them a box of groceries. If they're housed, it might be food that needs that can be cooked. And if they're living outside or in a shelter, it would just be food that they can eat without having to have utilities to cook it. So we're actually on track to provide over 1.2 million meals this year, which is double what we've ever done before, which is pretty pretty crazy. Wow. If people are looking for how, when, and where, and how to get the food, they can just visit our website, preblestreet.org. All the information is there.
1: Can the average person who just needs a bump up this week go somewhere just to get a little bit of food, or do they have to go through, like, a main state program?
3: Nope. No program. So, All of Preble Street services are either no barrier or low barrier. And for our food services, especially the pantry, you don't have to do anything to qualify. You just show up and you can get a box of groceries. Yeah, again, the pantry is at 252 Oxford Street in Portland. And, you know, hours and everything are are on our website. But you don't have to do anything to qualify. In
1: regards to food sourcing partnerships like Farm to Pantry, how many local farms
3: contribute? I don't have the exact number. I know of at least a dozen local farms that contribute. And I think it varies like month to month and through the season, which farms are contributing and what they're contributing. I know we get meat. I know a lot, almost all of our produce comes from farms and also from our partners at Good Shepherd Food Bank who source from local farms. You know, it's anywhere from small farms like your farm Ray donated half a pig's worth of meat as well as some um, a monetary donation, which is amazing to big farms like Wolf's Neck this year was a huge supporter and gave us a lot of local meat, vegetables and everything. Anything that they usually have like a dinner series in the, in the summer, I guess, and they had to cancel it due to COVID. So any food they were going to use for that went to Preble Street. Oh, wow. I want to name farms, but I'm afraid I'll leave someone out. So I'm not going to list all things. I don't, I don't know everyone there, but yeah, they, every month there's different local farms that contribute to our food kitchen. That's awesome.
1: What was the increase in volume from last year to this
3: year? It's um, almost double, I think. So usually we do between 600 to 620,000 meals a year, and this year it's about 1.2 million that we're on track to provide.
1: Did you get an increase in volunteers? or a lot of people coming to help? Do you still need people helping?
3: Yeah. We definitely still need people helping. A lot of our vol- our regular volunteers at Pebble Street um, happen to be people who are who are older or maybe more vulnerable to COVID-19, and we're not able to come this year. So you know, at first it felt a little worrisome, like where we would get enough volunteers. But the community is amazing. We had had 3,000 volunteers come in since March, and we always need more though. Like helping hearts and hands are always needed since we are trying to meet a need that we've never had to meet before I mean that need has just increased so much the kitchen staff is always insanely busy and we do you know we require masks there's only so many people allowed in the building at a time physical distancing so it is a safe volunteer opportunity if you go to preblestreetorg slash volunteer you can sign up to volunteer right online and pick the you know you can either be there for the breakfast lunch dinner or food pantry shifts and we would love to have people come and help
1: and what does a volunteer typically do? If it was somebody who's never volunteered, maybe even never been in any sort of commercial kitchen at all and just wanted to come help, what would they likely do?
3: Yeah, so you'll you'll come in and our kitchen staff is amazing. They, you know, they work with volunteers every day including people that have never volunteered or worked in a kitchen before. They'll just they'll guide you with what to do. So it you might be putting prepared meals that the food kitchen staff has made into meal boxes to bring out for the street outreach collaborative you might be chopping onions for the day you might be filling um pantry boxes with different groceries and like there'll be a list of what needs to go in each box there will be plenty of people there to help tell you what to do it could be anything from cooking chopping meal prep to packaging up meals and and pantry groceries to go
1: so it sounds like any skill level
3: someone has, they can find a spot yes. in that in that kitchen to volunteer. Exactly. Yes. Like we have we have high school students that come in and volunteer. You know, they often don't have a lot of cooking experience or anything, but we put them right to work, and you know, they they go along great to people who are actually chefs in their in their normal lives, and you know, come and help prepare amazing meals. So, full range of skills. We got a, a big lamb donation, and there was like a a zoom tutorial where a chef was showing the kitchen staff, like an amazing it's for Christmas. It's for, they're going to have a special meal for Christmas um, that we're delivering to clients. And I think the chef was showing them like a special way to prepare the lamb. So there are all different kinds of ways that people can contribute. Yeah. It was pretty cool. That is so
1: cool. Is there anything else you would want to chat about, about food insecurity or other things that Preble street does that you think is really important when we're talking about?
3: Um, We kind of already touched on it. I did just want to, you know, mention again, like the resiliency of the community, like 2020 has been a a really bad year for a lot of people, but still people have continued to show up with financial donations, food donations, volunteering. Organizations like Cooking for Community popped up to help fill in the gaps. Like they, they get donations from the community. They help fund local restaurants to prepare food for people in need. So like helping restaurants stay open, that food goes to Preble Street, for example, to distribute to people who need, who need meals. So just all kinds of ways that the community has come together to, like, help in this really tough year. And I do want to talk about advocacy a little bit in that, you know, Preble Street food services and, you know, any other local food banks or pantries are not supposed to be long-term solutions to hunger. We're not going to solve hunger by, by handing out pantry boxes and meals to people. So what we really need is advocacy at a state and federal level for long-term solutions like SNAP and food stamps. Um, You know, people need to, you know, right now there's a lot of people using SNAP and food stamps, but it's not completely meeting the need. You know, people are still even with SNAP going hungry because it's not enough at this time. Mm So people call their, you know, senator or representative and tell them to boost SNAP and anything that can make SNAP stronger, basically. And anytime they hear in the news or, you know, when they're scrolling through Facebook, if they hear that there's, you know, a bill coming up that has to do with with anti-hunger stuff or, or hunger, to call their representative either to thank them for being on the right side of this and supporting food security or to ask them to do the right thing. So just keeping an eye on what's happening, you know, with our government.
1: Thank you so much, Jen, for taking the time. I highly recommend going to PrebleStreet.org to find out more about their shelter, anti-hunger, and advocacy programs that Preble Street's doing and how you can get involved and help make a difference. Next, we're going to chat with Heather. She works at the Belfast Food Co-op, and she also has a little homestead called Alder and Vine. And, of course, I have to talk to her about that as well. I love the Belfast food co op. Isn't it all <laughs> Food co ops use that as an example of how to run a food co op.
2: You have a little farm as well yeah, there Yeah, yeah. It's it's technically more of a homestead than a farm, but um, you know we grow I mean, uh, we grow all sorts of veggies and we have chickens and we have goats. <laughs>
1: Do you sell any of your stuff? I mean, it looks like you incorporate some of it into your online site, but do you sell, like, anything to the market or anything?
2: We have a fantastic raspberry patch. So uh, we have sold raspberries to the uh, co-op in the past. And we have a little um, farm stand that's kind of just by donation and pay what you can uh, on our property itself. Uh, and, And we're friends with other people. Uh, we have got a very kind of tight knit neighborhood, so uh, we have friends who have a huge greenhouse, and we have other friends who have the monstrous um, pumpkin patch, and so we get together and you know sell everything at the uh, little so roadside stand.
1: On top of doing the IT for the Belfast Food Co-op, you also have a miniature little co-op <laughs> in your front <laughs> lawn. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we do. <laughs> Heather's Homestead and her online shop are called Alder and Vine. A-L-D-E-R and V-I-N-E. And that's uh, alderandvine.com.
2: <laughs> that's awesome. Um, it says on your website, now I
1: don't know if this needs to be updated, that you have cats, a dog, a lot of chickens,
2: two goats, and a duck. Is, you still just have one duck. Oh. <sighs> We don't have the duck anymore. (laughs) No. Yeah, yeah. We had uh, Indian runner ducks, and they are – do you have any? Do you have any ducks? No, I just have
1: Muscovies, a couple pecans, and then a Rando – I forgot what it's called that
2: someone gave me. Sure. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The Indian runner ducks are – they they don't fly. They just run. They look like bowling pins, and they're really cute. Um, But they're super loud, and they would just, like, wander around – you know, free ranging, yelling at the top of their lungs. Um, We also have a lot of coyotes in the neighborhood. Um, Oh. So we lost the ducks.
1: (laughs) Hey, what a great time to plug my last episode of this podcast, which was about coyotes and how they're actually pretty awesome. Uh, But there's a lot of stuff we have to do as homesteaders and farmers to make sure they don't uh, get into our business. Oh yeah. Well, if you get if you get fencing situated and you want some muscovies, let me know.
2: Yes, I have plenty. I <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I like this like black market like poultry trades because we we've yes. given chickens to everyone we know. Like, no, 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 you would like a few chickens. <laughs> okay.
1: So, I actually have you on the phone to not talk about farm research, which you are here to chat about the Farm Fresh Rewards Program that you helped
2: start. Yeah, uh, I helped roll it out at the Belfast Co-op. Uh, Maine Farmland Trust is the uh, organization that really runs the whole thing. Uh, when I came into the co-op in 2015, they were already talking to the Belfast Co-op about kind of piloting this program which uh, incentivizes buying local and you get rewarded with vouchers to buy more local fruits and vegetables so it's a very cool program and they were kind of at a stalemate they didn't really know how to roll it out so I came in from uh, the technology side and the reporting side and kind of just cleaned up everything so that we could move forward. Cool so from
1: the person that would be using these? Like, what, what are the benefits How and how does it work?
2: Sure. Uh, so it's specifically for people who use um, SNAP EBT benefits. And uh, if they buy SNAP eligible local products, anything that's uh, grown or produced in Maine, they get dollar for dollar uh, vouchers for uh, then buying fruits and vegetables that are grown locally as well. So if they spend $20 in local products and pay with their SNAP card, they get $20 worth of vouchers to use towards fruits and vegetables so that are grown here.
1: Whoa. Yes. That is
2: awesome.
1: <laughs> That's yeah, huge. it's super fun. So if I am using SNAP and I go to a local market that accepts both SNAP and the Farm Fresh Rewards, when mm-hmm. I buy local products, I get a voucher for that same amount of money that i just spent to spend on more yep. local stuff.
2: Yep. It's a one for one. Uh, when it first started, it was $5 uh, for every $10 spent, but they um, received enough funding and they're confident they'll continue to receive the funding um, that they decided to just go one for one. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, it's fun. I get so... to be at the cash register sometimes at the co-op and, people will come in and you know, I, I get to give like $80 worth of vouchers to people. Like that was like the last two transactions I did that had farm crush rewards were $80 in vouchers back to them. Oh my God. Yeah. So good.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: that is awesome. Okay. So the Belfast food co-op itself, I feel like it's, it's just kind of a great place to go. I don't know. I just, whenever I'm in there, I just feel inspired to buy local and I just feel like everything's laid out so perfectly, um, and I leave with way more than I came in to buy. Is there any way that our communities are kind of working with people to teach them how to use these farm-fresh
2: products? Absolutely. So our marketing team will do um, shopping tours if people want them. So um, you know they'll take They'll take them around the store and, you know, point out how to spot local items and um, how the program works more in depth. Farm Fresh Rewards website, uh, which is farmfreshrewards.org, lays it out really well conceptually. And they have um, a good visual key of how each of the co-ops and natural food stores mark their local products. So you can go anywhere and know what you're looking for. So cool.
1: So the Farmland Trust didn't know exactly how to roll it out, as you were saying. So they came to you. And what kind of problems did you help them
2: solve? On my side, it was purely technical stuff. So uh, literally how you can trigger the vouchers to work in in our system, um, which is you know, this big database with all of these different tags and how can we reliably make sure that when people use the vouchers, it's picking up the things that it can actually be used on and then on the reporting side, uh, Maine Farmland Trust has huge annual reports that they need to supply to their funders to, you know, make sure that they know that they're following the rules and that this is actually a worthwhile program. So figuring out how we can get all of those data points back to them on a monthly basis as well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I'm on their website right now and you're yeah, you're totally right. It's like it's so
2: user friendly and there's a lot of good resources on here. Um, yeah, and that's all Maine Farmland Trust. They do an incredible job of uh, you know, outreach and education and surveying the users and all of these things. There's so many stores that participate in this. I had no idea. Yeah, they're all over the place. So there's, uh, I think, 19. On the website, it mentions, too, that uh, there's a, a farmer's market version of this as well, which is called Maine Harvest Bucks. And when this first started uh, back in 2016, Maine Harvest Bucks was the name of both programs. And they split off because there's two different people managing it or two different organizations managing it. So they just did a name change for um, Farm Fresh Rewards. Uh, But there's farmers markets all over the state that accept vouchers as well. And it's the same setup where they get a one-to-one voucher.
1: And as a participating local farmer in this, it's there's no difference. They still get all the money yeah. that they would get.
2: Exactly, yep.
1: But basically they get are able reimbursed. to give twice
2: as much. Yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was looking
2: at our numbers, uh, and we so in the past year, so the calendar year, not not including December so far, we accepted over $51,000 worth of vouchers. So it's fifty-one thousand dollars in fruits and vegetables that have been paid for with the voucher program. That is so, and that's just our store.
1: (laughs) That's just Belfast.
2: That's just Belfast, and we are between us and Portland. We kind of swap places of who's number one and number two in the program. Uh, But uh, and that's why I love them so much. (laughs) I will say that they're they're fantastic as well. Uh, So we like our two stores are kind of this. the upper tier of, um, voucher redemption, but, you know, there's 17 other stores that are taking part in doing just as much for their communities. That's so
1: cool.
2: I did want to mention that this program isn't specific to Maine. Uh, I've gone to conferences with other co-ops as well as, uh, conferences with our uh, software developers and, all of these different co-ops around the country are uh, you know, trying to troubleshoot how to do these same programs because they exist in at least a dozen other states. Those are the ones I could verify, but they're really starting to spread around the country. So anybody in any state should go to their local co-op and ask if they have these sort of programs. That is really cool. How's the co-op been,
1: uh doing in the um, pandemic?
2: Really, uh, we're really well considering. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. weird to say really well, uh, but everybody—I mean, the staff has just been kind of going out straight since March. Uh, you know, where where most small businesses are seeing a huge downturn in in sales, we're a grocery store. We're seeing nothing but growth, which feels weird. <laughs> It feels weird to be like, okay, so we're making more money than usual. Um, people are staying home. People aren't going out to eat, so they're buying good food. Like the um, People are really spending the time thinking about the quality of the food that they're buying uh, because they have the extra income because they're not going out. <laughs> uh, Do you find so
1: supply from local farmers is becoming harder?
2: Like, no. Uh, this, this time of year, obviously, things are going to slow down, but uh, I think a lot of farms – around here put a lot of effort over the summer into creating greenhouses where they can grow uh they can extend their season. The the local farmers uh just came out uh during the during the summer everybody was producing such good stuff and in such huge quantities over the you know the harvest season. Our produce department is all local and just insanely beautiful. So they did a great job. I was really proud of everybody this year.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, people should go to alderandvine.com, and if they don't buy anything for themselves, they can buy me a witch tea towel and a cauldron
2: candle. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) Well, thanks for that plug. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Of course.
1: You have a great day. Thank you so much, Heather.
2: You too. It was great talking to you, Rachel. (laughs) You too. Mm -hmm. Bye.
1: it we aired our second episode of this podcast yay thank you so much dr anastasia norman jen from Preble street and heather from the belfast food co-op and much much thanks to all the families who sent in recordings of their little ones talking about food i really think it added some lightness to a heavy subject Thank you so much for tuning in to the Fervor Effect. Be sure to subscribe. Maybe you could even tell a friend. Thank you so much.
0: You bake it in the oven. Yeah.
1: Do you like raising chickens?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you like
1: best about your chickens?
0: I, I love when they lay eggs. You do? Mm-hmm.
3: Why do you like when they lay eggs?
0: Because we can eat them. Yeah. All right.
1: What about your pigs?
0: They we I like eating meat sometimes. You do? Mm-hmm. Does it stick it my it teeth? It does. Mm-hmm.
1: What's your favorite kind of food? Um I
0: I will like hot dogs and mac and cheese. You do? That's your favorite? Yeah. What else do you like to eat? I like to eat trees. Trees? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? <laughs> Being silly. Yeah. Okay. I wanna be getting snow too. Like you